The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the 200th episode of Talking Indonesia. My name is Tito Ambio from Aramati School of Media and Communication. I'm recording from Bandung, my hometown, which I've been staying in um, the last week, which has been fun. This is the 200th episode, so we're going to do something a bit different. Um, in past episodes, usually we focus on one thing to allow you, our friend, our listener, listening right now, to learn something about Indonesia beyond the headlines and beyond the 400-word articles, um, to learn something new about this very complex nation we call Indonesia. But in doing so, as hosts, we have often, like you, found surprising things that our guests have said to us, our amazing guests uh, that we have interviewed in the past few years. And even when we, like you, our listener, have been studying Indonesia or have lived in Indonesia, have been reading about Indonesia for many years, there's always something surprising in almost every interview we do. So as the host of this special 200th episode, I have the honor to be hosting now. And uh, I thought it would be very interesting to ask my co-hosts, Dave, Gemma, and Jackie, to give us some extracts of some of the most interesting or surprising interviews they've done in the past. And doing so, we also hope that you might want to listen to some of those old classic episodes. Um, check out our back catalog to celebrate this 200th episode with us. Um, and it's also a good time for us to pause and look, look, look back at the things we've done as a podcast and see what we can still learn from old episodes and talk about what have changed or maybe what, um, uh, whether things have not changed since then. And with us today, we have our Talking Indonesia co-hosts. First, we, ha we have uh, Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne. How are you going, Dave? Uh, I'm great and uh, great to be gathering with all of the hosts of Talking Indonesia. We actually uh, don't do this nearly often enough. <laughs> yeah, and Gemma, we have Gemma Purdy as well. How are you going, Gemma? Hi, so great to see you all and be chatting today. Beautiful, and we have Jackie Baker. How are you going, Jackie? Hi, nice to see everybody. Yes, um, it's great to be with you all, Gemma, Dave and Jackie. So this is how it's gonna work. Um, I'm going to play some of the grabs that you have sent to me. And after we play the grab, um, then I'm going to ask uh, you who have chosen the grab about why you chose the grab. And then we can talk about it. We can contextualize uh, what uh, uh, that grab in our current time. We can talk about the context of the interview. We can also just you know comment on what's happening. So hopefully we can just, yeah, we're just going to be having a chat about these things. Um, and in between, we're also very lucky to have had some messages of congratulations from our friends and colleagues, people who have been uh, guests in the past. So we'll play some of those messages as well. So the first grab uh, or the first few grabs that we'll be playing today have been chosen by you, Dave. Um, and this is from um, Ligia Giai. So I'm just going to play the grab first and then we can discuss it. So here's the grab. I think uh, what the government officials say, and they've said this repeatedly, is not, it's not, it doesn't as much influence um, what people believe about Papuans as it um, reflects it. Um, 
every time Papuans uh, cry racism, the first, the fir- their first um, reaction is to deny that it exists. And because they deny that it exists, they're also denying the fact that this country is, this, that this is a racist country. Um, and this is why what we hear every time Papuans demonstrate is this um, chiding, this scolding, that Papuans are not grateful. Um, but also, what, what is actually most troubling about this is actually um, to hear people who love Indonesia so much, yet unwilling to confront the fact that it is racist. Um, you're not giving Papuans a lot of space to um, protest, to express themselves, to make Indonesia perhaps better. What, they, what is demanded is to, for Papuans to not say anything, um, for Papuans to just accept things as they are. But there are, no, uh, there are no public discussions about how we can make Indonesia as a country less racist, more inclusive towards Papuans. Like, those are missing. So what is going on there? Uh, I, yeah, it, this is something that still is, I still cannot understand. Why is it impossible for people who really love Indonesia to vision an Indonesia that is not racist toward Papuans? This is the demand for a country to not be racist should not be seen as a threat to your country if you really love it. So that was an interview from July 2020 about racism uh, that was done by you, Dave. Um, And let me just kind of rephrase or paraphrase what Gia says in the interview. She says to hear people who love Indonesia so much but not willing to admit that Indonesia um, is facing racism is the same as not giving the opportunity to make Indonesia better. And then she asks the question, which I think is a very, very important and interesting question to explore. Why is it impossible for people who love Indonesia to have a vision of Indonesia that is not racist, especially towards Papuans? And the demand for the country to not be racist should not be a threat. So let's discuss this because I think racism is uh, an important issue that we're facing in Indonesia right now. But first, Dave, can you contextualize the interview and so we can have a discussion about it? Sure, sure. So, I mean, July 2020, um, back when I had this fascinating conversation with Dr. Ligia Giai, of course, was just a couple of months after the May 2020 killing of George Floyd in the United States and the associated Black Lives Matter movement that sprung out of that. Uh, And, you know, of course, we saw echoes across the globe of that movement, one of them being a Papuan Lives Matter uh, discourse, uh, protests, uh, a hashtag that generated a, a huge amount of social media action in Indonesia. And Papuan Lives Matter also followed on from these massive anti-racism protests that we saw in cities throughout Papua and indeed across Indonesia uh, after the racist abuse of Papuan students in Surabaya and Malang in the lead up to Indonesia's Independence Day in, in August 2019. Um, so I guess I wanted to revisit this interview first because I think, as Gia mentions in the interview, uh, I guess we still haven't seen a lot of discussion of, of racism as an issue in Indonesia, but more particularly, this answer was a, re- a response from Gia to, I guess, the typical retort of Indonesian government officials. And I quoted a, 
foreign affairs spokesperson at the time prompting this answer from Gia of one of denial of basically saying that claims of racism were just a tactic by independent supporters to uh, increase their support. Um, and so then I guess for me, Gia's answers, uh, thinking here as an Australian, I guess really resonated with what we also see in Australia, where so often we see official statements saying, no, there isn't really racism. We see all manner of people uh, bending over backwards to disallow each and every claim of racism that we see within our society as, in fact, something else. And perhaps most prominently here in Australia would be the example of the racist booing of the Indigenous football star Adam Goods that forced him out of the game. He was later Australian, well, maybe at the time was already Australian of the year, mm. um, was booed out of the game. And, and yet we saw all manner of excuses as, as to why this racist booing was not in fact racist uh, and, and inaction from, from authorities at the time. And so, yeah, I, I, I guess I found Ligia's answer both interesting in thinking about Indonesian society, but also Australian society and why it's so difficult for people to acknowledge racism in our midst. Jackie, you used to spend time with Dr. Giai uh, when she was in Australia. Um, maybe you can kind of explain to us a little bit more about, you know, what kind of conversations did you used to have, maybe contextualize this a little bit more? Most of my conversations with Gia uh, were had at the Asia Research Centre dining table um, discussing the quality of sambal from various <laughs> uh, outlets around Perth. And this was uh, kind of Gia's great mission in Perth was to find the best sambal she could get, the hottest, pr precisely the hottest sambal she could get. Well, you um, can't get more Indonesian than that. No, yeah, pretty exactly. much. All of the conversations were about <laughs> about different food outlets, um, and Gear was such is such a remarkable person um, because she's incredibly fun and incredibly lighthearted and, and joyful. You know, to to um, sit and talk with her um, is is a really is a really enjoyable experience, um, and and yet um, put on the spot, she has such incredible reflections on. Um, on society, on life, on um, Indonesian, on change in Indonesia. She's the happiest when she's sitting there with a bunch of archival uh, sort of like books and just picking through archives from 200, 300 years ago. And yet she brings that sensibility to contemporary um, society and politics, which I always find uh, an incredible skill. She, she, she's a joy. <laughs> and Dr. Giai, if you can, if you're listening, please tell me where to get the best sambal in, in Australia. Um, Gemma, do you have anything? I mean, you know, you've written about racism as well, so in, in Indonesia. So, yeah, what what do you think about this? How do we talk more about racism in a more informed way in Indonesia? And what are what are the challenges? Mm, yeah, I mean. Uh, you know, I have written about the Chinese Indonesians in particular and more recently, um, you know, we've thought about it for an Inside Indonesia edition on racism, precisely asking this question, you know, why can't we talk about racism? But as Dave said, this is not unique to Indonesia, I think, in this case. But if, you know, if we think about kind of modern Indonesia and, you know, a post-colonial nation state, um, you know, there are different contexts. And perhaps one of them, you know, if we think about, you know, post-New Order Indonesia in particular, and the hangover that is there from the New Order period where, you know, the there were great taboos around discussion of sukho, gama, ras, ag, um, 
Antara, Antar uh, Golongan, so the, the Sara idea, right? You didn't talk mm. about those issues. It was Binaka Ikatungal, that was it. It was unity and diversity. And, and so these things, they became so taboo that I think, you know, when um, Gia is asking about why are people seeing this as a threat, why, why is the idea of Indonesia as a racist country seen as a threat. I think that there's something there, the fear that that was engendered during that New Order period, particularly related to Sara and about the way that talk about Sara could lead to instability, yeah, could lead to um, the state somehow being threatened. Maybe this is still something that permeates. Um, But you know, the thing is, as Usman um, Hamid from Amnesty International and many, many lawmakers will tell you, Indonesia actually has got legal instruments in place to protect against racial discrimination, um, and yet they're never used or very rarely used. And, in fact, I think there's never been a conviction since these laws were brought in um, over, like, uh, I think 2008 was when this racial discrimination law was introduced. Hmm. And the irony is that, in fact, often these laws are used against minorities themselves. So there's a lot going on, right, that, that's really difficult to just answer <laughs> in a few minutes. Um, but you know what? I mean, it's so great that someone like Gia is out there and she's asking the questions and there are many, many others. You know, we know of many, many other young activists and intellectuals who are really pushing. And I think, you know, Dave kind of found that moment in 2020 with the Papua and Lives Matter was a really important moment to talk to Gia and to raise that question. And, um, you know, there needs to be more conversation as there needs to be in all of our communities. But yeah, not an easy one indeed. Mm. Anything else that we want to add on that on that grab about racism in Indonesia? Yeah, actually, I have um, something I want to share. I, you know, and uh, Dave was really right to bring up the Adam Goods uh, episode in Australia um, that happened shamefully here in Perth as well, where um, the football player was, you know. Uh, there were a lot of racist slurs towards him, um, and you know, Perth was pretty unrepentant, actually, after that racist episode. And more recently, um, yesterday, we've been having a conversation in Australia about netball and netball sponsorship. Um, An Indigenous, one of Australia's first Indigenous netball players um, didn't want to wear a a, a vest showing sponsorship um, by a company who was uh, owned by uh, a man who had made numerous deeply racist and very hurtful comments. And I think uh, one thing is important to reflect on is that um, being a trailblazer or or raising these kinds of questions, the enormous bravery I think it takes to speak uh, and how how dangerous it can be to speak, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I feel that Gia's comments um, are incredibly brave because they're very confronting for the status quo. Um, Like everyone who speaks from their I think, I guess, people um, who raise issues of racism are often um, castigized. They're a lot of, they get a lot of hate and a lot of hate mail. I know that was also part of Gia's experience when she wrote about this um, around the Papuan Lives Matter issue. Um, and, you know, and I think we 
expect people to be amazing and to to stay as trailblazers and to be these um, martyrs for the cause. But I think it comes as, as enormous personal toll. Thank you, Jackie. Yeah, I think I think um, that's a really good discussion, and you can uh, you can uh, listen to the whole episode. Um, when was that episode? July 2020. So if you want to listen to the whole episode uh, with Dr. Ligia Giai, um, then you can yeah, check out the July 2020 episode. But next, I want to play a grab that also was chosen by you, Dave, um, which is from Dr. Fabio Scappello. Um, and this is, he was talking about the former uh, Minister for Maritime Affairs and Fisheries in Indonesia, Susi Pujastuti. So I'll play the grab now. <laughs> she, she definitely stepped on many toes, I think that's, uh, that's fair to say. And there was, at one level, as I say, because of her policies that really did shake the industry, but another level also because of her approach and what emerged essentially her inability to build alliances. She worked alone. So she was very, very single-minded in her approach, and she only trusted a handful of people, really about four or five that I could name. And she pretty much saw anyone else either directly or indirectly linked to the fishery mafia. Now, that may be true, may not be true. I don't know. My job was not to ascertain that. But the reality is that it created a situation that she was alone fighting against pretty much everyone else that was included in the fishery industry. And that includes the owners of the large-scale fishery, both in Indonesia and abroad, but also includes quite a large number of those in, involved in the mid-scale industry and pretty much every fishery associations that used to play quite a large role in the politics of the industry, but they were completely cut off during Susi's time. And also quite a few of academics, especially those linked with the Bogor Institute of Technology, the Maritime Department out there. Again, this is a, a group of scholars, a group, a social group that usually plays quite an important role in the politics of the fishery industry, but they were completely cut out by SUSE. So that's an interview with Dr. Fabio Scarpello from November 2020. Can you contextualize the interview, Dave? Um, because I think this is, you know, this grab tells us something very important in Indonesia right now, which is the difficulties of post-Suharto reforms in general. So, Dave, can you contextualize? And then it will be great to uh, hear from you, Jackie and Gemma, uh, about what you think. So, Dave. Yeah, no, I, I guess I was drawn to Fabio's research, uh, Dr. Fabio's Capillo's research as one of the first, I think, long critical takes on the approach to reform of Suzy Pujastuti, the very prominent, very popular maritime affairs and, and fisheries minister. And yeah, I guess I found this grab in the conversation fascinating because, you know, one of the perennial questions that we've faced with post-authoritarian reform in Indonesia is this idea of the uh, predatory logic or the mafia-controlled industries and how a reformer uh, avoids being absorbed into that predatory logic when they when they become part of the establishment and, and seek to create change. And so here in Susi, you had this figure who steadfastly refused really to make any accommodations with the existing order uh, and yet... Um, her reforms did not endure. She wasn't reappointed as a, as a second-term fisheries minister despite her public popularity. And, and so I just found it a good prompt myself to 
to think about what are the paths to reform and, and really a, a fascinating interview with Fabio who himself is from Sicily and as he acknowledged uh, through his personal experience uh, knows of the difficulties of reforming mafia controlled industries um, just to think through what are some of the approaches that, that might create reforms that do endure. Gemma, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fascinating insight, isn't it? Not just to um, Susie's um, situation in um, Jokowi's first cabinet, but the way that Jokowi has actually formed that cabinet and subsequent um, government uh, in which he has elevated um, what you might call celebrities, you know, celebrity politicians, successful business people essentially into these positions um, where, they, you know, in the, in the ministries where he, you know, ostensibly has backed them to introduce reform and they have been given quite a lot of independence in order to carry that out. But we've seen, um, you know, this is not the only case where, where these reforms have been stymied and that approach is not always a success. I mean, it also gives insight, I think, into, you know, what we've recognised particularly, you know, with the pandemic and the way the government has has been um running things, Um, you know, this constant refrain from the critics of the government regarding the propensity for Jokowi to appoint um, friends, essentially, um, of the government, Um, you know, the lack of transparency around those appointments and, you know, and also this idea of insiders, which continues to dominate in Indonesian government, um, and as you know, Susie's case um, really shows if you're not an insider, how do you get anything done? That, that's a reality that continues to um, <laughs> provide challenges. Well, speaking of challenges, um, Jackie, you've been uh, writing a lot on Twitter. <laughs> if, you, if you haven't followed Jackie Baker on Twitter, by the way, you should. It's amazing. Um, but I can feel your frustration. You've been writing a lot about uh, police reform. And recently we have the Kanjuruhan tragedy and you've been writing about, um, about this particularly. But you, you, you have also been basically seeing monitoring reforms in the police institutions in Indonesia. What do you think about that grab? What's your comment on it? I think Susie, yeah, I mean, so I, I think this links in quite closely to the link to the talk, uh, the quote we're going to be talking about uh, later on in this program about the frustrations of police reform. Um, and I certainly, I think, having watched the glacial pace of police reform, well, let me say it another way. Let me. Um, Police reform has occurred uh, and there have been massive changes to the police, but they have occurred um, in the context, in the way that the police want them uh, and with very little democratic accountability. So we've seen a lot of reform in ways that consolidate the economic and political power of the police. And I guess it's gotten me thinking a lot about reform and perhaps I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I would have been a much more conciliatory type thinking that well you've got to build your coalitions you need to um, you know approach reform in a much more cooperative and conciliatory way but I think having watched um, the police and 
police, the failure of police reform effectively over the last 20 years, culminating in what we've seen in the last few weeks, which is the Kanjuruan tragedy, and also the, the um, concurrent trial of Ferdi Sambo, a police general for executing, in effect, in effect a, a junior officer. I mean, reform is just it's just a failed exercise. And so I've been wondering, like, why don't we have more radical efforts? You know, why don't we think bigger? Like, think think off the, off the radical blueprint. And I guess this Susie uh, quote that Dave's put forward kind of reminds us of how, how difficult that is. And, and it's also worth pointing out that Susie um, was remarkable in that, A, she was a remarkable person in and of herself. She's a very strong-willed individual. Um, B, she's independently wealthy. So uh, whatever happened to her in Parliament uh, was not going to affect that. Um, and C, um, she she had enormous political capital, right? And even in those contexts, you can't do radical reform. Mm. So I guess, you know, on one side, I'm feeling deeply frustrated with uh, you know, the the, the kind of pace-by-pace pace, uh, liberal uh, institution-building type reforms because of the nature of the, the kind of the cooperative pact that you have to come to um, and seeing that as an, as an utter failure. But in the case of Susie, this shows us that radical reforms are also deeply challenging. And in fact, you know, her political career is over. Um, so, yeah, with a reform. Sorry, that was a bit of a depressing uh, observation. <laughs> we'll, we'll have a more positive take later in the episode, so that's fine. <laughs> um, thank you, Jackie, and, and also thank you, Dave, for those two grabs. Now we're going to take a little bit of a break to listen to some thank you messages from former guests. So I'm just going to play that now. Hi, my name is Sharon Graham Davies from the Herb Feast Indonesian Engagement Centre at Monash University. And what do I love about the Talking Indonesia podcasts? Well, lots of things, but I particularly love the fact that on a beautiful sunny day or even a cold blustery day, when I really had enough of work but feel like I should keep working, I can grab the podcast, head outside, go for a walk and not feel guilty because I'm still working and still learning. Assalamu alaikum. It's me, Nadir Hossein from Monash University. It's a great achievement that we have 200 episodes of the Talking Indonesia podcast. I certainly learn a lot from the podcast and I'm honored as one of the guests in those episodes. Congrats, Dave, but please don't stop here. We want more episodes, thousands, not only 200, okay? We want more. We want more. Wassalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Hi, I'm Ratika Binawa, one of the speakers at the Talking Indonesia podcast. Congratulations on your 200 episodes. I wish everyone success and continue to provide platforms for anyone interested in the Indonesian studies from various perspectives. Keep going. <laughs> Now I'm going to play the grabs that you, Gemma, have selected. The first one is from Associate Professor Malina Lim. Um, so let me just play this grab. She's talking about what she calls algorithmic enclaves here. And yeah, we'll talk about it after the grab. 
Any nation user typically have a very large and diverse network of contacts. I have, for example, all kind of online friends, typically often about a thousand friends. So expose them to varied political discussion. However, because of the nature of algorithm, the click mechanism allow extreme information to actually to be more popular than others. This means you are more exposed to either extreme information that you you really love or believe in and information that you really hate or you disagree. You don't really see things in between. So for anti and pro ahok social media user, precisely the exposure to this uh, disagreeable information and discussion actually just confirm their own viewpoints. I think what I really like about this grab, Gemma, is that Marlena Lim basically popped the bubble on this myth of the bubbles, right? Where, you know, it's too easy for us to say, oh, you know, people are stuck in their own bubbles. But really what's happening, especially online as well, is that it's not a bubble. It's an enclave where people actually see what, um, you know, other points of view. It's just that often they return and retreat back to their enclaves and sometimes being shown the other side being shown what uh, their opponents are saying actually make them retreat even harder. Uh, So Gemma, can you contextualize uh, this this grab uh, for us, please? Yeah, well, this one's actually a little bit old. Um, So I interviewed Molina back in December 2018, right? So coming up on four years, but it's so relevant. And yeah, I love that observation of yours too, Tito. I felt like her work was so fresh. Um, So she published a paper um, called Freedom to Hate, Social Media, Algorithmic Enclaves and the Rise of Tribal Nationalism in Indonesia. And the case study that she uses was, you know, the election um, ultimately of Anis Baswedan as governor um, of Jakarta and um, the defeat of the uh, incumbent um, Basuki Cahaya Purnama or Ahok, as she refers to him by by that name. And as everyone will know, our listeners will well remember, this was a particularly um, fiery campaign. It was preceded by, well, was actually simultaneously occurring whilst um, Ahok was facing blasphemy charges for which he was eventually found guilty and sentenced to jail time. So, you know, it was an extreme kind of high, high emotional um Uh, period of campaigning and indeed um, it was felt and reverberated right across Indonesia right not just in Jakarta this these divisions that were appearing between you know what we we you know were observing perhaps as being you know a really um, you know strongly maybe extreme Islamic element on the one hand and then minority groups who Ahok represents that is ethnic Chinese and Christian um and then in the middle, you had, you know, you had the rest of Indonesia kind of wondering what on earth was happening and why they were going down this path. And so Molina's, um, you know, her interview, people should really, I encourage them to go and listen to the whole thing because she gives this really great um, contextualization of, you know, really the internet, the journey that Indonesia's been going on with the internet um, since the 1990s and, you know, how, how it got to this position where, as she describes, there are these algorithmic enclaves where, yeah, you you know, you are, you do have the freedom to hate others. And in fact, the way that the internet is designed is, you know, allowing you to hate even harder. 
So, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. I love that idea that you know she she's telling us that it's being able to see the other that actually mm. is creating this sense of fear or self righteousness or, um, you know, whatever. I mean, it's a little bit, you know. Um, going back to our first grab with gear, our first, you know, discussion about racism and, you know, underlying all of this stuff still is this sense of fear, um, which I think comes out too in this discussion. Mm. Dave, you've worked a lot um, in the fields of conflicts in Indonesia. What, can you give us a bit of a yeah, comment on this grab? Yeah, uh, I mean, if you go back to the conflicts that followed or sort of shortly preceded in some cases the end of authoritarian rule um, maybe an idea of bubbles would be more fitting because you know the physical effect of that violent conflict was that communities became segregated uh, within the areas where they were happening and it became uh, difficult and hazardous for interreligious or in some cases inter-ethnic conflict and so I, I think it is a great insight uh, from uh, Associate Professor Melina Lim to show the way that polarization has has operated differently uh, in this internet era. And I guess when I hear that grab, you know, I'm, I'm always drawn to the 2019 presidential elections in particular, but really the I guess the 2014 as well, where this idea that there should be a moral edge to political choices, I think, was really encouraged by both campaigns um, and you know. Uh, both through online, but just through general campaigning, that you know this was a a choice between alternatives where the stakes were incredibly high, and so there should be a moral dimension uh, that that polarised communities. But then, in twenty nineteen, just after the election, um, you see Prabowo suddenly joining forces with Jokowi and becoming defence minister. Uh, about a year after the election, uh, Santiago Uno also joining as a minister in cabinet. And so I guess, you know, I, I always wonder how uh, the polarisation that was driven by these campaigns, by this enclave effect, uh, withstands or is altered uh, by the sorts of political accommodations that are, that are commonplace within Indonesian politics. Hi, uh, this is Anissa Beta. I really love talking Indonesia because it's the best and easiest way for me to learn about new research, new discussions, the latest and greatest studies on Indonesia. Hi, Dave, Ken, Gemma and the Talking Indonesia team. It's Liam Prince from The Teachers here. Uh, congrats on 200 episodes. Anyone can start a podcast, but only the elect keep one going for seven years. Uh, well done on seeing the gap in the market for an Indonesian politics podcast and fulfilling it so brilliantly. And thanks for showcasing the expertise of so many Achitas alumni over the years, both as hosts and guests. Selamat uh, terima kasih. Looking forward to the next 200 episodes. Saya Ariana Utomo ingin menghaturkan ucapan selamat kepada Talking Indonesia untuk episode yang ke-200. Semoga kedepannya selalu dan semakin bermakna, berbobot, dan berwarna episode-episodenya. Terima kasih.
Dear Talking Indonesia podcast team, congratulations on having produced 200 excellent recordings. It's, uh, of course, very impressive to see not just the selection of topics that you have covered in the last uh, couple of years. But as a team, I think you also have a great antenna for finding relevant topics. And of course, the selection of your speakers from near and far um, is very remarkable. So keep up the good spirit and best wishes for the next 200 episodes. Uh, warm greetings from Bielefeld and Schmisbach. So we've played grabs that you, Dave, have selected. We've played a grab uh, that um, Gemma, you have selected. And now, Jackie, you have selected a very, very interesting grab. And I think it will allow us to talk a little bit more about something that's positive. <laughs> I think we should end with a somehow a positive take. So this is an interview with Andy Yendriani from Komnas Perempuan. I'm going to play it, and then we are going to discuss it uh, <laughs> i mean like you know what i always told my friends and colleagues in comnes from one we do not have the privilege of being not optimistic <laughs> how should i say it um yeah it's 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 bleak in it it's bleak in it uh, every now and then we have cases where the police actually I mean, like, how should they say it? They, they are the problem themselves. In the same time, they should be part of the solution. So we cannot go very fast to them uh, in order to get also like small possibilities of the reform is still on the table or else nobody is going to talk to us. Yeah, Komnas Perempuan is already being stigmatized as Gerwani kind of movement, which is, uh, I mean, like in Indonesian context, I, I'm sure that you are aware of. Uh, that is also another layer of the difficulty if you're already being stigmatized. Gerwani as a communist and feminist as a Western kind of idea is always being utilized to undermine uh, the whole advocacy of women's rights. So, yeah. So, I mean, like in Komnas Prompuan, what I learned is actually how to balance uh, in a pro radical feminist idea in the same time keep kind of a space for negotiation to see uh, that our suggestions going to be taken up, I mean, like recommendations to be at least considered by, you know, like, so it's it's kind of sad, but that's, that's the way it is at the same time. <laughs> this, this, this grab made me smile because I've met so many people in Indonesia who are just like Andy Entriani here from Thomas Prompuan. They're doing amazing things. They're facing such huge challenges, but they just smile. They just laugh and just, just say, you know, well, that's how it is. And I think that kind of, you know, it talks about something that I always knew to be kind of true about Indonesia, which is you cannot understand Indonesia from a distance. The coolest things, the best things are happening in, you know, in small things that are done in the small spaces, as Andy Yentriani says, in that grab, you know, small possibilities of reformation, you know, organizations like Komnas Perempuan, where they have to negotiate sometimes a very difficult and often very narrow spaces for change and reforms. But, you know, they just laugh and they just talk about these things as if it's nothing. Um, obviously, it's not nothing. But Jackie, can you tell us about this interview and then we can talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you enjoyed this quote as much as I did. 
Uh, I'm very new to the Talking Indonesia podcast, so this was only my third podcast I've recorded. But Andy was an incredible, incredibly joyous um, person to um, speak with. And this quote really sat with me, I guess, in part because I've been thinking about the frustrations of re reform, particularly thinking about uh, the Indonesian police. Uh, and Andy here is talking about um, how Komnas uh, Prempuan, of which she's the head, um, worked with other organisations to push for the successful passing of the elimination of sexual violence law. And that law requires pretty significant um, uh, reform um, and carrying of the load by law enforcement, particularly the police. And so I was really interested to hear how she negotiated that relationship. On one side, that quote made me realise how difficult radical possibilities are right, that you have to work within a system um, and that they won't talk to you if you come up with sort of other ideas. Moreover, you're working from a re very repressed place. Uh, she speaks about the stereotypes of Gurwani, meaning the women's uh, communist organisation um, from back in the 60s, uh, which was castigated um, and, and um, uh, socially marginalised uh, after the coup. So uh, she talks about those kinds of stereotypes that she's working under. She also talks about stereotypes of Western liberal feminism that they're trying to negotiate with. Um, and I guess to me this felt like uh, I could see how women's organisations trying to work for victims of sexual violence were in many ways negotiating with one hand tied behind their back. But um, you're right, Tito, to to turn this into, in some ways, um, a story that reminds us of the day-to-day -day grind of reform and of the, the way that people like Andy get up every day and carry on. You know, we don't have the luxury of being uh, not optimistic. And I think that comment reminds me um, that as, as frustrated as I can feel with police reform, um, we do have to just get up every day and keep going. And there is an enormous cohort of Indonesians um, pushing for social and political change and they get up every day and they just keep going. Um, I'll also say I did ask her what she does um, to give her the sustenance to keep going and she she talked, like Gia, she talked a lot about food. Food, food is the thing that keeps her going. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that's that's it as well. I think that's what I'm feeling. I mean, I've been traveling in Indonesia for the last two weeks, and yeah, the food's amazing. That's why I think that's yeah, a source of joy for many. Gemma, do you, what what's your uh, take on this on this grab? I mean, it just resonates so much, doesn't it? With you know, so many people that we've met, encountered in our work studying, researching, traveling and living in Indonesia who's so generous, so glass half full about everything when, you know, we come in and, and think it's all too hard with our first world problems, if you want to put it that way. Um, you know, it, I see it too, like you, as a very positive and, you know, um, uh, emblematic kind of example for for the Indonesia that I love, that I've fallen in love with. Um, and so many of the inspiring people that we've had on Talking Indonesia are exactly like Andi, aren't they, in that they continue to, you know, do work their hardest um, to make change, to provide evidence that they can put before uh, the policymakers, et cetera, et cetera, 
um, as they as they go about their work. So yeah, I love it as well. Komnas Prempuan, dear to my heart, one of the first organisations that I encountered way back when I first uh, went to Indonesia for field work. Um, and you know their perseverance and the perseverance of so many groups, in you know women's groups in particular, to get that sexual violence bill through. You know a decade of pushing against what seemed like pretty insurmountable odds. You know there are a lot of really powerful stakeholders there opposing it, and and yet they got it done. Dave, what do you think? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd echo um, the comments of everyone that you know one of the delights of this podcast, uh, I guess, conducting research in Indonesia as well, is just the number of people you encounter who are working away uh, in very positive ways, uh, making uh, working for positive change uh, in Indonesian society. And uh, I guess in the context of the podcast, uh, so often research-driven positive change. And, you know, one of the great things about 200 episodes is you know, we've covered ground of, uh, I guess, I think of people like uh, Dr. Diana Setiwati and Dr. Wayan Suryastini looking at mental health and uh, in the case of uh, Diana Setiwati, changes in primary care and how that can improve uh, things for, for various people in Indonesia, um, people like Dama Juniato and Wayudi Jafar looking at issues of digital attacks, privacy, big data that, you know, I think resonate not just across uh, Indonesian society, but but across all societies, um, even someone like Dr. Inaya Rahmani de- describing the difficulties of social inquiry as an academic um, within Indonesian universities, and and many many more a- mm. across the course of two hundred episodes. And you know, uh, I guess we can become siloed in our own interests and and lose sight of just how many people there are out there in different spheres. Uh, plugging away, uh, making a positive change day by day. So uh, thank you very much, uh, everyone, uh, for our listeners as well. Thank you for uh, listening uh, to this episode. It's a little bit longer, this episode, but hopefully you've enjoyed um, going back to some of the old grabs. Um, uh, I definitely have enjoyed listening to to these three amazing people talking about um, the grabs. Um, but Gemma and Dave, you've been involved with Talking Indonesia for the longest, so maybe if you want to take the floor and say what you want to say, people you want to thank, or whatever you want to say um, for the end of this episode. Sure. Hey. Um, so before I get into thanks, um, if I could just read out one more uh, message from a past guest to the podcast, Jamie Davidson, uh, who sent in a, a text message for us to read out, uh, namely saying, so darn impressive. What a tremendous service you and your colleagues have provided for the wider Indonesian academic community. I wish you all the best on the next 200. Um, so thank you, Jamie, and thank you indeed to all the guests uh, that we've had over the 200 episodes um, who, in so generously sharing their time and insights, I think, more than anyone else really make Talking Indonesia what it is. So thank you to everyone who's been on and I hope when we come and knock on your door again and ask you to appear a second time or a third time uh, that you'll 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 be open to doing so. Um, I'd also like to thank both the current group of hosts and I'd echo Tito's comments in how much I find I learn from co-hosts, uh, but also everyone who's hosted Talking Indonesia over the years um, from... Dr. Ken Setiawan back in 2015, um, Dr. Dirk Thompson and Dr. Charlotte Setiadi over a number of years, and Dr. Anissa Beta uh, more recently in 
getting probably getting the years wrong, but I think in 2021. And so thank you for everyone for the energy that you've put into the podcast over such a long period of years. Um, also, the listeners, um, we wouldn't do Talking Indonesia uh, if it wasn't for the listeners. Um, so thank you for tuning in and please do be in touch anytime you'd like to, to give us any feedback on the podcast. Um, finally, then, I guess also um, behind the scenes, uh, the Indonesia at Melbourne blog editor, Tim Mann, who's been so flexible over the years at uh, posts going up at, at all manners of the, the day and night. Um, everyone involved with Indonesia at Melbourne, including Professor Tim Lindsay, um, for hosting the podcast on the site. Um, then to Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Param, who edited the Policy and Focus episodes, and uh, of course KSI for supporting those episodes. And a special thanks to Eric and Kelvin, who've provided a lot of technical advice over the years, uh, over time, uh, that I think everyone involved with the podcast and hopefully listeners especially uh, have benefit, benefited uh, from the improvement in in sound quality that their advice has brought about. Um, so yeah, thank you really to to everyone who's contributed in in one way or another. I'm sure I've forgotten some people. Um, it's been a joy bringing the first 200 episodes of Talking Indonesia to everyone, and and you know I hope it's a podcast that will continue for a long time to come. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, listener, and. Um... We'll see you next time. Well, we'll be back next time. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. Bye. Bye.